and sisters, my name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life Prez. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up with me to the book of James. Uh, we're continuing along in our series uh, entitled Living Faith, uh, studying the book of James together, and today our passage comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And if you don't have your Bibles, we'll also project the verses on the screen in front of you as well. But again, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 2. And if I could kindly ask for those of you who are uh, worshiping in person here today, if we could just stand for the reading of God's word as an act of reverence and worship towards him. And I'll read this for us together. James chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But if you, you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is God's word for us. Please be seated at this time. You know, back when I was in college, I remember this TV show came out called Undercover Boss. I'm not sure if many of you have heard of it or seen of it before, but... For those of you who have never seen the show or heard of it, basically what happens in every episode of this show is the boss or the CEO of a major company or a corporation, uh, they disguise themselves, they go undercover, and what they do is they visit one of their company's local chains or locations, and they essentially pretend to be an entry-level worker as the CEO of the company getting trained on their first day of the job. And at the end of every episode, what happens is the CEO, they finally reveal their true identity to all the people that they met at this local chain, all their, their employees, basically. And what really where the entertainment, of the, value sh entertainment value of the show comes from is just seeing how differently you know, some of these workers on the show treat their boss as soon as they find out that this person that they were training the whole day is actually the CEO of the entire company compared to when they thought they were just a regular employee. Because a lot of times what happens in the show is the CEO is dressed in kind of shabby, just really regular clothing. They always try and pretend and act a little bit incompetent as they're being trained by these employees. And so what happens is some of the employees on the show, they actually treat the CEO of their company pretty badly. They yell at them. They're rude to, towards them. They're abrasive. They're condescending to them, towards them. But what's funny is at the end of every episode, those same employees, right after the boss comes out you know, with this fresh haircut, in a really expensive suit and tie, the, the boss reveals themselves to them. Those same employees are the ones who are treating their, their boss with so much respect, so much deference, and they're kissing up to them so much at the very end of the show. Now, brothers and sisters, the reason that I share this is because 
In a lot of ways, this show, Undercover Boss, it highlights the very issue that James is talking about here in this passage that we just read. The, the issue of the human tendency, in other words, to show partiality or favoritism. In other words, the human tendency to judge and to treat other people based on what you see. Now, friends, just to remind us where we are so far in the book of James, so far in chapter 1, James has explained to us and he's shown us three distinguishing markers of how you can tell someone has a real and a true faith in their life. And he showed us first, you can tell by how these people approach trials. Secondly, you can see how they approach and deal with their own temptations when they're tempted by sin. And thirdly, as we saw last week, as Pastor Min preached for us, how these people are not just hearers of the word, they don't just absorb the word through their ears, but they live it out and they act it. And brothers and sisters, in today's passage, what James does is James shows us that another way that you can tell if you or someone else in your life has a faith that is alive and that is real is by how they treat other people, how they treat and act towards other people. In other words, you can tell by what their heart posture is towards other people, especially as James will show us in this passage, people who are different from you, people who are not like you, people who in some cases may be less privileged than you are. And so, brothers and sisters, today, what I want us to do as we examine and study this passage here together is I want us to explore this issue of partiality and favoritism by asking three questions. First, what is partiality? What exactly is this sin that James is talking about here? Secondly, why is it so wrong? Why does James and why does God take partiality so seriously? And the last question that we'll ask is, as believers, how can you and I fight partiality? Because this is something that is so ingrained in all of our hearts. And so again, the three questions we'll ask as we examine this passage here together is first, what is partiality? Secondly, why is it so wrong? And thirdly, how can we begin to fight it in our lives as Christians? And so let's begin with the first point. Now, if you still have your Bibles with you, if you read verse 1 again with me, James opens this passage and he writes in verse 1 and he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, friends, as we begin to just sort of parse out and define what partiality is, it's important to note that the exact word and phrase that James actually uses in the Greek for partiality, in the Greek, it's actually a word that is essentially a phrase, and this phrase basically means to receive someone's face. In other words, it's to accept someone or to receive them by only looking at their face, only looking at their appearance, in other words. And so, friends, really what it means to show partiality is this. It's to make judgments on people solely and entirely based on what you see outside, on externals. In other words, it's to accept or reject someone to either gravitate towards or avoid someone solely based on external factors. You know, Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in the Midwest, he helpfully summarizes partiality by categorizing it and separating it into two categories. And he says, positively, partiality, what it becomes is favoritism. And friends, we all know what this is. Favoritism is essentially when you show love, you show kindness, hospitality, friendship, service to people because you naturally just like them. There's something that you see, there's something that you're drawn to. But friends, on the flip side, Matt Chandler says that what partiality becomes, it, it, it becomes discrimination. And friends, that's when you don't show, but you withhold some level of hospitality, friendship, service, and love towards people based on those same exact factors. And so, brothers and sisters, the command that James gives in this passage it's actually very straightforward. It's very simple. James is saying that as believers, that the way that you and I treat other people in our lives, that it should never be determined by things like their socioeconomic status, 
their education, their weight, their race, or the color of their skin, or even something as simple as their appearance or their attractiveness or unattractiveness to you. Because according to James' friends, that is what partiality is. Now, friends, just as a quick disclaimer, James is not saying, because some of you may be thinking, this means that I have to treat everyone exactly the same in my life. But friends, as a disclaimer, James is not saying that as Christians, that you are never called to or that you never should make distinctions among people in your life. Now, for example, I imagine in a church like ours, there's some of you who may work in HR, and your entire job is to basically make distinctions among people. And friends, James is not saying that if you work in HR and that if someone is applying for a position at your company, he's not saying that you should not make judgments or distinctions between people or candidates based on things like their resume, their credentials, their education, or even how well or how poorly they're dressed for the interview. That's not what James is saying. But friends, the important thing here is what James is saying, is that you cannot take those same criteria. You cannot take those same things that you use in the interview room, in the interview settings, someone's education, how much money they have, how much they make, their appearance, and allow those same criteria to dictate how you actually view and how you actually treat people in your life or in the church. Sam Alberry, who's a pastor in the UK, he helpfully summarized partiality this way. And he said this, and I quote, favoritism says in effect that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. And correspondingly, someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. Favoritism ends up judging one person's soul as being of greater value than another's, and it does all this on the basis of superficial worldly criteria. And so, brothers and sisters, what it means, what it means to show partiality or favoritism is essentially when you take and use the values and the criteria of this world to dictate someone's worth, someone's value and dignity, rather than using the values of God's kingdom. And friends, James, he gives us a very clear a very practical example of what this is and what happened in the church that he was writing to in verses 2 and 4. James says in verses 2 and 4, this, this scenario that happens in this church, there's a rich man and a poor man who walk into a church building. And the assumption here is that both these people are brand new. They've never been to the church because they don't know where to sit. And what James says is this rich person who's wearing fine clothing, he's given a good seat. And presumably, it's the best seat in the sanctuary, wherever that might be for you, in the very back or the very front. But he's given the very best seat. Whereas the poor person walks in, and he's wearing shabby clothing. You can clearly tell he's not rich, he's not well off, and what happens is he either isn't given a seat at all, and he's forced to stand in the back, or he's told, sit down next to my feet, next to the people who are already sitting in chairs. And brothers and sisters, James says in verse 4, what's happened in this scenario in this church is that the people of that church has become judges with evil thoughts. Because what James says happened is, these people in the church have allowed the values of the world to dictate how they treat and view people within the church. In other words, friends, they gave preferential treatment to this rich man because according to the world, the rich deserve more respect, better treatment than people who are poor. That's how the world operates. And so why should the church be any different? And friends, the truth and reality is, although James uses this one example in James chapter 2 of this rich man that walks into church and this poor man, the truth and the reality is that there's, this is actually just one among many potential expressions of partiality that may occur within our own hearts. And for example, friends, James could have easy, just as easily replaced this example of someone who's rich versus someone who's poor who walks into church. He could have easily replaced it with something like a really bright and charismatic person that walks into church versus someone who's kind of weird. 
someone who's quiet, someone who's awkward, someone who's really good looking that walks into church versus someone who is kind of unattractive, someone who's really fit and athletic versus someone who you could clearly tell has not exercised very much during the pandemic, or friends, even something as simple as someone who walks into the church and they look just like everyone else. They're the same race, they're the same ethnicity versus someone who walks in, and clearly that person and everyone else knows that they're different. And friends, James's point here in this passage is that to base your judgment, even slightly your treatment of these people based solely on those factors, that is partiality. And friends, it's something that although many of us, it may occur in our hearts so naturally and simply, friends, it's something that God takes so, so seriously. Now, friends, before we move on to our second point, I just want to take a moment to help us understand why does partiality occur in our hearts? Why do we do this? What is the anatomy of partiality? And friends, what I want to try and explain and show is that almost all of the time, partiality is inseparably linked to fear. It's linked to fear. Now, friends, what do I mean by that? Well, friends, in the Bible, as many of you may know, there are actually two types of fear in the Bible. Now, the first type of fear in the Bible is the fear that many of us may often think of when we hear that word. It's the type of fear where essentially you're afraid of someone, you're afraid of something because of what they might do to you. Now, friends, the second type of fear in the Bible is a fear that's not so much related to being afraid of someone, but it's a fear that's related to awe and reverence. In other words, it's giving respect and it's giving weight to someone who deserves it. And so, friends, the the question is, when you and I show partiality in our lives, when we show favoritism to someone, the question is, why do you do it? Why does this happen? Well, friends, it's because somewhere deep down in your heart, you fear that person in both senses of the word. And friends, I'm sure this is something that we've all been guilty of one point or another, haven't we? You know, your boss or your CEO, they walk into the room. Or someone that, you know, who has a lot of money, a lot of status, a lot of power, they're really tall and attractive, they're well-dressed, they walk into the room, and what happens is, somewhere deep down in your mind, deep down in your heart, even slightly, even marginally, you treat that person just barely differently than you would treat someone else. And friends, the reason that you do that is because somewhere deep down in your heart, you fear that person. There's fear. And friends, it occurs in two ways. See, on the one hand, you're afraid of that person because you're afraid of what they might think of you. You're afraid of their opinion of you, what they might do to you or say to you or about you towards other people. But see, on the flip side, there's also an added level or an increased level of awe and reverence towards that person because, friends, deep down, you think that there's something that person might be able to do for you how getting in their inner circle or getting close with them might gain you something in life. And so you give this person an inordinate amount of reverence. Now, friends, see, on the flip side, imagine that someone who is the opposite, someone who's not that successful, someone who doesn't have any clout or status, they're dressed kind of poorly and shabbily, they're really awkward, they're really weird, they walk up to you. And friends, the reason that you may, in very small and subtle ways, try to avoid that person, try to cut the conversation off really quickly or abruptly, or just walk away from them eventually is because there is no fear. There's absolutely no fear in your heart when you encounter that person. And what that means, friends, is there's no fear because one, you don't think that person has any influence or power over you or people in your social circle, and so why fear them? But at the same time, friends, you also, you don't show that person reverence. You don't show them the same level of awe as the other person because, friends, You don't think there's anything that person can do for you. There's nothing you can gain from befriending them, from talking to them, from knowing them and sharing your life with them. And so, friends, you either avoid them 
or you try and just keep them at an arm's distance. But friends, the point is, in either scenario, at the core of it, the reason that partiality comes out of our hearts is because we either fear people too much in our hearts, in our lives, or we have absolutely no fear for them at all, no reverence. Now friends, we'll discuss later on the solution to this heart and this fear issue that all of us have, but for now, let's move on to our second point. If that's what partiality is, why it occurs, then the question is, why is it so wrong? Now, friends, if in the second half of our passage in verses 5 through 13, James gives us several reasons why partiality is such a serious sin in the eyes and in the heart of God. But what I want us to do is I want us to focus on the two main ones that James focuses on here in this passage. And first, James says that partiality, it contradicts the very heart of God. It contradicts God's heart. But what secondly James also says, it not only does that, but it also contradicts and it violates God's law. And so first, if you read verse 5 again with me, James says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom with which he has promised to those who love him? Now, brothers and sisters, what James does here in verse 5 is he's speaking directly to these Christians that he just talked about the scenario with, people who are favoring the rich over the poor. He's speaking directly to these Christians, and he's saying to them that their partiality towards these rich people and their neglect of the poor, what it actually does is it completely contradicts the very heart of God. Now, friends, what is that? Brothers and sisters, the heart of God is this, that God does not choose only the best. God does not choose the holiest, the wealthiest, the wisest, to redeem, to save, and love. But friends, what does Scripture tell us and show us? That God actually does the opposite. That God loves to choose those who are weak in the world. God loves to choose those who are lowly. And he loves to choose people who cannot save or help themselves. Friends, we see this pattern in this heart repeated for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26-29, where the Apostle Paul says to the church, Consider your own calling, brothers, your own calling by God. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so, brothers and sisters, the first reason that partiality is so wrong and it's such a serious sin is because, brothers and sisters, if we're honest here today, almost all the time, the very people that you and I in our hearts or even in our actions we may judge, we may ignore or avoid or even discriminate against sometimes, those very people, those people who are outcasts, differ from us, poor and lowly, those are some of the same people that the Bible says God especially loves to bless, and to set his heart upon. Those are the same people. And so, friends, that is why partiality is such a serious sin. Because, friends, when we discriminate, when we show partiality and favoritism, we violate the very heart of God, which tells, which tells us that we ourselves were not saved because of how high or valuable we were to God, because of how successful, accomplished, smart, wealthy, successful, or smart we were, but and so, friends, the demand that we place upon other people, that other people meet our own criteria of value and worth based on externals, well, friends, it goes against the very gospel that you and I were saved by. It goes against 
the very heart of God. And friends, that's why James says partiality is such a serious sin. Now, friends, the second reason that James gives us in this passage is that partiality, it not only violates God's heart deeply, but it also violates his law. And if you read verses 8 through 10 again with me, James says in verses 8 through 10 this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, friends, what James does in these verses is James alludes to something that many of us are familiar with. Director Paul actually led that led us through this in the, in the reading of the law here this morning. James alludes to Jesus' own summary of the entire law and the gospels in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the reason that James does this and mentions Jesus' own summary of the law is because, friends, this actually might have been a way that James's readers and people in this church he was writing to were actually trying to justify in this really twisted way their favoritism and their partiality. Now, friends, what I mean by that is this. When James's readers were giving all this preferential treatment to rich people who walked in their doors and when they were neglecting the poor, in their minds, they probably thought that they were loving their neighbors when they were giving all this attention, all this respect and treatment to these rich people. When in reality, James, what James is trying to point out is that they were not obeying this commandment. They were not loving their neighbors and, as themselves. They're only loving some of their neighbors. And friends, James's point here, what he's trying to show the readers of this epistle and us here today is that, friends, keeping the law selectively is actually breaking it. In other words, friends, showing love to some people and yet withholding it in other scenarios towards other people, keeping some commandments and not keeping others, friends, what it makes you at the end of the day, James says, is a lawbreaker. And that's why he says in verse 10, if you keep the whole law, every single command in the Bible, your entire life and yet you fail even in one point, James says, that you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, friends, some of us at this point, we might be thinking that James is being a little bit too narrow, kind of harsh and strict and legalistic here. But friends, notice what James writes in the very next verse, in verse 11. In verse 11, James says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, friends, I know that this is somewhat of an extreme example, but friends, for those of you who are married, and if you're not married, you can just imagine. Friends, imagine that, you know, in a marriage, if your spouse caught you in adultery, if your spouse caught you being unfaithful to them, brothers and sisters, how many of us in that scenario, when your spouse confronts you, would defend yourself by saying this, okay, I admit it, I was unfaithful towards you. I was unfaithful, but at least I didn't murder anyone. At least I still went to church every single week. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I paid my taxes every week, and I didn't steal from anyone. Brothers and sisters, none of us in our right minds would ever even think to say something like that if that conversation, if that scenario ever happened in our lives. But brothers and sisters, the point is, friends, even if in something like a marriage, if breaking one covenant commitment, just one covenant commitment of being faithful, breaking that even once, it completely destroys and fractures the entire covenant relationship, then friends, even in the same way, breaking one of God's commandments in something as simple and seemingly small as partiality, 
Friends, what it does is it disrupts and it fractures and violates our covenant relationship with God. And friends, that is why partiality, according to James, is so deep and it's so serious. Because it not only violates God's heart, but it breaks and violates his law relationally. Now, friends, before we move on to our second point, let me just say a few words about about God's heart and about his law. You know, I know many of us, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard something along these lines, this phrase, that when you break God's law, you break his heart. And whenever you break God's heart, it's because you've broken one of his laws. That, In other words, when you violate God legally, it means at the same time you violate him relationally. Now, friends, I know that's something that many of us may be familiar with already, we may know, but it's something I think a lot of times it's, it's hard to visualize and picture and grasp in everyday life. Now, during the pandemic, I, I watched this movie called, a Netflix original movie called Marriage Story. Some of you may have watched it as well during the pandemic. And it's actually kind of a misleading title. The story's not about a marriage, but it's actually all about a divorce that unravels and happens. And friends, the reason that I bring this up is because I think this movie does a great job of depicting very really just all the pain and all the hurt and trauma that not only the relational, but also the legal aspects of divorce draw and bring. And for example, one of the most gut-wrenching scenes in the movie was when the couple portrayed by Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, they basically get into this huge argument and they literally, it feels like they're yelling and screaming at each other for what feels like an eternity. It's almost 10 minutes straight of just arguing and yelling, bickering and crying and screaming. And it was one of the most intense and gripping and powerful scenes in the movie. And yet at the same time, one of the other scenes that gripped me the most, and it was so powerful and sombering in a different way, was at the very end of the movie, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, they're sitting in their separate houses, thousands and thousands of miles apart on the East Coast and West Coast. And they're both sitting down in the scene at the same time. They grab pens and they start signing on the dotted line for all their divorce papers. Now, friends, all they're doing is they're writing on a piece of paper. But friends, the scene was so powerful because it depicted at the very end of the movie, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but the end of the movie, them finalizing their legal relationship, their separation from one another legally. Now, friends, the reason that I bring this up is because in a marriage relationship, if you want to harm the other person emotionally, deeply, if you want to harm them, their heart, you simply look them in the eye and you tell them, I don't love you anymore, and I, no long, I don't want to be with you anymore. But friends, on the flip side, if you want to harm that person legally, then all you do is you start making calls. You file the divorce papers. You start signing. You, you hire a divorce lawyer. Now, friends, I'm not married. I can't imagine which one would be more painful towards me. But friends, the point is both of them hurt. Both of them cut and sever the relationship deeply and sharply. And friends, here's James's point. James is saying that when you and I do something like show partiality, even though no one else can maybe able to see it within our hearts at times, friends, what we do when we show partiality is we do both towards God. We do both. We not only violate him deeply in his heart relationally, but we have violated him legally. And friends, both of them cut so deep to the very heart of God. And friends, that is why James says partiality is a sin that although it's so common, is so serious. And brothers and sisters, this brings us to our last point. If that's the case, if that's how deeply God considers partiality, then how can you and I as Christians begin to fight this sin in our lives? Well, friends, if you remember from our first point, 
if partiality and favoritism, if they're directly linked and related towards fear, fear of other people and reverence, and friends, if the reason that we show partiality towards some people and that we withhold it from other people is because we either fear those people too much in our hearts or we don't fear them enough, we don't have enough respect and reverence for them, then friends, the question is how can you and I begin to change and fight this in our lives and our actions and hearts? And brothers and sisters, the answer is that you and I need to reorient and re- reshape our idea of glory. And friends, what I mean by that is this. Like, let me explain. Brothers and sisters, isn't it true that the reason that you and I, we show fear, we show awe, we show reverence and respect to people is because we either believe they have a lot of glory or we believe they deserve a lot of glory. Now, if you could just imagine this scenario, just pretend with me for a moment or imagine that a celebrity, a famous athlete or actor, Stephen Curry or Scarlett Johansson, they, they attend our worship service here today. Everyone sees them walk through the doors. Now, friends, I can imagine that if that actually did happen here today, that so many of us, probably myself included, we would get so excited. Many of us after service would try and talk to them, maybe get an autograph or say hi, get a selfie. And friends, we would do that. Why would that happen? Because friends, naturally and instinctively, according to the world, those people have and they deserve a lot of glory. You know, they're, they're rich, they're successful, they're accomplished, they're wealthy, they're powerful. They have all this glory And so naturally, we feel as if they deserve our respect. They deserve our fear and all our reverence. And friends, as natural as a scenario like that may be for us, if that were actually to happen here today, friends, read with me again how James opens this passage in verse 1. In verse 1, James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, friends, literally in the Greek, what James does at the very end of verse 1 in that phrase, the Lord of glory, is literally in the Greek, what he calls Christians is he calls us believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question here this morning. Why is Jesus glorious? Why is he so glorious? Brothers and sisters, in your own life, why to you does Jesus deserve so much glory? Friends, is it because he's powerful? Is it because he's omniscient and all-knowing? Is it because he's sovereign and he has authority over all things? Brothers and sisters, the way the Bible answers that question, what makes Jesus glorious is this. Jesus is glorious, not because of his wealth, not because of his power, his status, but because of his humility, because of his meekness, his lowliness, and his poverty. As Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Brothers and sisters, where Jesus was most glorified in his life, it was not in his miracles. It was not in his healings and his teachings. It wasn't in his signs and wonders. But friends, it was in his humiliation and his weakness upon the cross, where he demonstrated for us the reconciling love of God in dying for our sins, in rising again for our justification. Brothers and sisters, when we begin to, as believers, understand this and see this, what happens is it redefines and it reshapes our idea of what we think to be truly glorious in life. Friends, in other words, if, if Jesus, and not the world, but if, if Christ and his cross is your benchmark 
for what glory is, then friends, as you look around the world around you, at people, at things that are glorious, friends, if you start to truly understand the glory of Christ and the cross, then friends, the glory of the world slowly starts to look a little bit less impressive, and it slowly starts to fade away. Now friends, this doesn't mean that you can't, or you shouldn't ever show deference or respect to people who may be in positions of authority or people who deserve recognition or respect, but friends, it means that you no longer, as a believer, you no longer solely base your judgment and your, people, your treatment of people based upon external factors because, friends, you now have a new benchmark. You have a new definition, and you have a new picture of what glory is in seeing your crucified, your poor and lowly Savior Jesus hanging upon the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to a close here this morning, I pray that, if anything else from this passage, that we would remember this. That, friends, the gospel reminds you and me that in God's grace, he chose us in spite of our sins, in spite of our shortcomings. God did not look at us externally and say, wow, you have so much to offer me. You have so much to offer my kingdom. I think I'll save you. But no, friends, God looked at us And despite seeing all of our shortcomings, all of our lowliness, weakness, sins, and flaws, God welcomed us with open arms into his family. And friends, James reminds us in this passage that in the same way that God has drawn us and welcomed us into his family, that has to be the controlling benchmark for how we treat, how we view, how we judge and look at other people around us who may be different from us, who we may instinctively think as beneath us, or people, friends, who, according to the world's eyes, they have and they deserve no glory. Brothers and sisters, here this morning, as people who have received mercy and not judgment from God in Christ, let us extend mercy and not partiality, not judgment, towards those that God has placed around us. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer at this time. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word this morning that, Lord, challenges us and convicts us, Lord, for as we come before you here in worship, Lord, honestly reflecting upon our hearts and our lives. Lord, we know that this sin of partiality is something that we so easily and so naturally, Lord, show or withhold from other people in our lives. And so, Father, we, we pray this morning that you would help us to see, Lord, help us to understand How deeply, Lord, this sin grieves not just your heart, but also relationally, Lord, to to you through your law. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning, God, as we continue to reflect and look upon the cross of Christ, Lord, where he was exalted to the highest place, given the name above every other name, Lord, that you would help reorient and shape our idea and our picture of glory. Lord, as we look at other people around us, Lord, that we would no longer judge and treat them based upon, Lord, the world's definition of glory, Lord, that you would give us new eyes and fresh hearts, Lord, to love and to extend mercy and grace towards people that you've placed around us. And so, Father, we thank you again, Lord, for this time. Lord, continue to work within our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name.